Hey, it's Brandon Laws. Welcome to Transform Workplace. Thanks for the download today. We've got a great show for you today. I have Tara J. Frank on the show. She's the author of The Waymakers, Clearing the Path to Workplace Equity with Competence and Confidence. And a waymaker, it's an active leader who opens doors, removes barriers, and ushers people through to greater levels of contribution. And Tara is discussing the inspiration behind the book and will provide a roadmap for fostering workplace equity. So you're going to enjoy this. There's a lot of great actionable things in this podcast. And make sure to go pick up the book as well. It's a great read. Hope you enjoy today's episode with Tara J. Frank, the author of The Waymakers. Make sure to connect with me on LinkedIn and Instagram. Love connecting with listeners there. And make sure to give us a five-star rating and a written review. It'd be awesome on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to the show. Have a great week and we'll talk to you next Tuesday. We've got lots of great stuff coming. It is a pleasure to have you on Transform Your Workplace. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for inviting me, Brandon. I appreciate it. In the intro of your book, The Waymakers, Clearing the Path to Workplace Equity with Competence and Confidence, you'd said that inequity is rooted in power dynamics and that they exist everywhere. Can you give me some examples of where those power dynamics exist? <laughs> It'd probably be easier for me to give you examples of where they don't exist. Um, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> they exist in, in almost every system, honestly, that we work in. You know, they exist in the educational system. They certainly obviously exist in government. And they exist inside our workplaces when we determine who to hire, when we decide who to promote, when we decide who to invite into a certain room where information is being disseminated and, and you know, the people we don't invite. So power is everywhere and it's usually concentrated uh, with a select group of people. And it becomes a matter of how that power is or is not shared, right? That dictates the degree to which other people can succeed. Now we in especially the HR space, we talk about equity, inequity. Give me some examples of how that shows up, either at work, in communities. I'd love to hear it. Yeah, you know, it, it's interesting. That's a very broad question, right? One of the things that's happened over the last week, I read an article of a man who, I think he was living in New York. I forgot exactly where he was living, but he's a professor and they were trying to sell their home, right? So they went to get an appraisal and the house was initially appraised at 400 and something thousand. Uh, he then invited a white colleague of his, this was a black man, he invited a white colleague of his to come and stand in as the homeowner and scrub the home of all traces of his blackness. And then it was appraised at $750,000. Um, this is one of those examples, right, where that inequity has very real, um, I'll say, impact on people's wealth 
their ability to build generational wealth, et cetera. So inequity, again, happens outside of work, but inside of work, which of course is where you know I focus most of my effort, it has to do with who's getting the access to the information that people need in order to be successful Uh, the power networks, right, that we need who sometimes open these doors, serve as waymakers for us, remove barriers for us, and also just those opportunities. Sometimes it's promotion, but sometimes it's honestly just the opportunity to be on that really important body of work where everyone who happened to be in the room when the amazing thing happened gets propelled forward. Uh, So, you know, equitable outcomes are tied to equitable opportunities and not everyone gets those opportunities to show and prove, to win, to demonstrate results that other people get. An example in, in the workplace, I think, relates to that home appraisal that you just described. In the book, I think you outlined a C-level position that a woman was interviewing for. And I think it was listed for like $185,000 salary. Yes. And then she gets the job. They switch the title on her and give her like one hundred and fifty grand or something like that. So completely opposite. And it probably has something to do with the fact it was a woman. Yeah. Maybe black too. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. I mean, you know, those are the things that happen every single day. You know, one of the things that happens a lot, and I talk about the, there are so many examples in the book, just really practical day in and day out examples. But when we're deciding who to put into a leadership development program, for example, right? Like if we're putting together a leadership development program and we say, well, this program is for high potential people. Usually the high potential people are people who remind us of ourselves And if those making those decisions are all, um, you know, of one ilk, if you will, then the folks who end up getting selected to be in that learning loop, right, to learn and grow and, and create those relationships are more of the same. And so those are those chances where you're either in the learning loop or you're outside of the learning loop. And, and those opportunities tend to perpetuate themselves. Let's talk about the perpetuation of this. I think I mean, it seems like in reading your book that a lot of these issues are systemic. And if we did absolutely nothing, the system would just keep doing its thing and no change would ever happen. And I'm curious if if there's systemic things that we have to change, like blow up the whole system, start fresh, make tweaks to the system, or if it has to do with people and the way they behave and, and show up. I don't I don't know if people wake up every morning thinking like, I'm going to put people down today. I'm, right. I'm going to make sure they're inequitable. Yeah, no. I, I don't know if people wake up like that. Maybe they do. Um, I'm curious what your stance is on this. Yeah, I have a couple thoughts about that. It's a really good question. In terms of, you know, do people wake up and say, I'm going to hold people down today? Uh, no. For the most part, they do not do that. They go into the environment, right? And they do what they've always done. You know, there are orthodoxies, I think, in any given environment where this is just how we've always done it. This is how we make decisions. This is just how things are. And at a point, we don't really question those things because it's just kind of part of the fabric of the company. It's in the environment Um, But those systems, right, those processes, if you will, were designed, many of them, for and by white men, you know, many, many years ago. And so they advantage white men often and don't necessarily advantage people who may not fit that particular mental model. So if we don't teach ourselves, train ourselves to intervene, right, to interrupt some of these processes and to ask better questions like, 
well, how do we know and who else and why do we believe that? And is that really the best way to do it or just the way we're accustomed to? If we don't do those kinds of things as individuals, right, to interrupt the systems and intervene at the right time, then they don't really ever change. So the answer is both. It's the systems that need to be interrogated, right, because it's the people who implement them. Right. <laughs> or change yeah. them. I'm thinking, you know, holistically, if we want to make differences in equity across workplaces, our community, society as a whole, my assumption is we do not want to just sit back and wait for the people in power to do the right thing because they may never do the right thing or maybe they don't want to shake up the system. What's a way we can make change either as individuals, let's say I'm a contributor level employee yeah. who notices a flaw. What do, what do I do to speak up? Well, you're asking the quintessential question, right? So the, the name of my book, of course, is The Waymakers. And I wrote it for all the people who may be watching what's happening, you know, who may believe that inequity exists but they don't necessarily see themselves as having a role in doing anything about it. You know, I talk in the book, as you know, about the tipping point, right? Whenever we're going through any kind of change, you have 20-ish percent of the people on the front end, like, let's go, let's change, let's make this thing happen. You have 20, 25% on the other end, right? Crossing their arms, digging their heels in. You know, I, I like to joke saying, don't touch my stuff. But the majority of the people are always in the middle, just kind of sitting back, observing, trying to figure out what's happening, saying, I'm going to wait and see. And when people ask me, why have we not made more progress on equity and inclusion in the workplace? I say, you know, lovingly and respectfully, it's because of the fence sitters. We won't really get to that critical mass, to that tipping point. We won't see sustainable culture change until the people who've been sitting on the fence get off the fence and get into the equity arena. So, I see my book as an invitation, Brandon, right, to all those people who maybe think, well, yeah, inequity isn't fair. And yes, I believe that things aren't equitable. And I do think something should be done about it to recognize that they are the people who can do something about it. So when you ask, what can we do? Again, we can take responsibility for our role in facilitating change by asking better questions, by pushing back against bias that we see and experience by being an upstander and not a bystander, right? As some people talk about it. So there are moments like that every single day in the workplace where we have the opportunity to interrupt those systems and processes by just stopping the train, right? Like, hold on, wait, let's talk about this. I think it's an interesting point, like just people being on the fence too, or just sitting back and waiting. And I, I even hear the conversation starting a lot, but it's it's just that. It's just a lot of conversation and not a lot of action. Do you see that the same way I do, where it's just not a lot of action being taken? We're just talking about it. Yeah, I do. And, you know, it's interesting because I wrote the book for a couple of reasons. Like one is I realized that people had, you know, they had these really great intentions. And so they were talking about how they wanted their workplace to be different. Some of them, even over the last couple of years, have adjusted some of their policies, but people don't really know how to translate those theories and those big ideas into day-to-day -day choices and behaviors. So the book is meant to be a translator of sorts, if that makes sense. Like, okay, there are these big ideas about equity and inclusion, and you can do this to your processes, but if you want to be the kind of person who helps facilitate inclusion and equity every single day, then you need to help people feel seen, respected, valued, and protected. 
And these are the ways we help people feel seen, like really specifically, right? We did, as I think you know, some proprietary research with a company called Brand Trust, where we asked hundreds of employees to tell us stories of times they felt seen, respected, valued, and protected, and times they felt invisible and disrespected and underappreciated and scrutinized. And we were able to identify patterns in those stories that really kind of pulled forward the most common leadership actions and behaviors that made people feel any number of ways. Um, and it, it created a book that's, I think, really useful yeah. um, for people. I do feel like it's this book is different than the others in that it's, there's a roadmap, a playbook, so to speak, right. about how to make change, empower yourself to make change. Thank yeah. you. I'm glad you thought that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've, I've read a lot of books on diversity, equity, inclusion, and a lot of them are just talking about the issues with no action behind it. And right, I think right. it just takes it a step further. I think you identify a lot of the issues that are present and takes it a step further with, with an action plan. So I appreciate that. Well, mission accomplished then. (laughs) (laughs) For leaders who really do want to make change, but they need the self-awareness around where they're at, do you recommend diving into this work at a place where they're at or at a specific place that you've identified that it makes sense for everybody to start? I honestly think everybody needs to start where they are. You know, the reality is not everybody even really knows where they are. (laughs) And and I talk about that a lot in the book too. You know, the most common thing that happens is if a CEO or C-suite leader reaches out to me and they say, we want to do better than we've done, um, you know, talk to us about best practices. I usually say, well, let's have a conversation first about what you know about your company, your culture, how your employees are experiencing your culture today. Because everybody wants to go to the best practices, but the best practices for one company aren't necessarily the best practices for another. So I encourage every company to get a really good sense of what their company culture is like right now and how all of their different employees across segments are experiencing that culture in real time. And, you know, my frame is seen, respected, valued, and protected because I know that when people feel seen, it helps with attraction. When people feel respected, it leads to belonging, right? When they feel valued, it helps with retention. And when they feel protected, it unlocks innovation. So for me, as a former business leader, that's the frame that, again, is useful and practical for business leaders inside companies. Um, And there are ways to assess the degree to which people feel that way. Once they understand that, they get a much better sense of where they should begin, right? Like where's our deepest pain and where's our greatest opportunity? And for me, every journey inside a company is like a solution development process. You start with discovery, right? Yeah, and the discovery seems to be um, both inward, you know, self-awareness around, hey, us as a senior leadership or executive team, like how do we reflect on where we're at? And then also asking employees about how they feel. The only issue I have with this like surveying or interviewing employees is that if you don't have a psychologically safe environment, they might fear retaliation of some sort and they won't open up about it. So that's my only pause. Do you have any insight as to how to make sure to get authentic responses? Yeah. I mean, there are a couple of things there. You know, I actually designed an employee experience survey that's really different from the engagement tools that are out there right now. It asks 
I think, not I think, I know, it asks more pointed questions that are really about the experience and less about judging what the company is doing or, you know, not so much, I'm going to tell my company what I think about what they think. It's more like, do you clearly understand what it takes to get to the next level? You either do or you don't. You know what I mean? Do you get timely feedback on your performance? You either do or you don't. And so knowing what people are experiencing at that level, which is not about sentiment, again, it's about experience, gets you really meaningful data about what's happening. And if you can look at it, again, if you can splice it across segments, you can see are some people having a better experience here than others? Um, so there's that. And then when people do like focus groups or triads or, you know, small group conversations inside companies, I honestly never recommend that they have internal people do that. I know internal people are capable of doing it, but it's not safe for people to be honest when that happens. So I'm often, you know, called in to do that kind of thing. And I think it's about how effective the facilitator is in creating safety in that moment as to whether or not you're going to get people to open up. Yeah, I love that. Do you believe like when you take into the the fact where we are and where we want to go, which is an equitable society, workplace, all, all that, do you think there's alignment with what employees want and what companies want? Because I often feel like there's a lot of people out there that think they have to give up something in order to make the world a better place and make everybody more equitable. Do you feel like everything's in alignment though? Or we think like most people thinking about it wrong? I don't think everything is in alignment, but I think it's really important for companies to be clear about not only what they value, but what they believe. (laughs) Because as you know, in this space, our beliefs dictate our choices and behaviors not our values. You know, I was having a fascinating conversation with someone a few weeks ago who works for a big company and that company is owned by a conglomerate. And the leader of the conglomerate is, you know, goes on record all the time talking about how their values are people oriented, right? Like we value generosity, we value fairness, we value collaboration, we value shared humanity. Like they have all these values You would expect that someone who valued all those things would feel good about the work associated with equity and inclusion, but that's not a safe assumption because you can believe in generosity and think only some people need it. I mean, you can value fairness, but believe everybody already has it. So your beliefs dictate what you're actually going to go do. And I think if companies can better evaluate that and assess that, then be clear about their desired outcomes, they can kind of figure out how to communicate that to employees in a way that give employees a chance to self-assess, right? Is this something I want to be part of or not? Because employees, as we've all discovered over the last however many months, um, have options and they're exercising them. But I tell high-level leaders, you be clear about the kind of company you want to build And then employees will have a chance to determine whether or not they want to be part of that. So from a Waymaker's standpoint, you know, their journey, what are some of those key defining moments that they might experience along this way with progress? Yeah, it's, I like to say anyone who wants to be a Waymaker can be, right? And I define a Waymaker as someone who, again, wants to be supportive and help make a way for all people, 
um, as somebody who opens doors and removes barriers and kind of ushers people through to greater levels of contribution. I think about waymaking as a very active leadership style. And I think that every leader can and should be a waymaker. To me, this is not just about diversity. It's really about the kind of leadership that's going to help us be successful in the future and create more vibrant cultures. Um, There are certain moments in the employee journey where it's really important for waymakers to show up for other people, right? We tend to, when we're trying to think, oh, how do we change culture? How do we improve employee experience? We tend to think about it through a company-centric lens. We're like, oh, we need to fix hiring. You know, we need to fix onboarding. We need to fix, that's how we think about it. But that's not how employees think about it. You know, they think about it, well, when I'm doing something new, you know, a new job, a new team, a new boss, I really need people to help me navigate, you know, when I don't have all the information or I don't really know this person very well. I need to know where to find the information or how to access resources. So when people are doing a new thing, we can show up for them by helping them navigate. When they're chasing their dreams, right, aspiring to those higher levels of contribution, we can help define the opportunity landscape for them. We can help connect them, right, to influencers who might be able to give them some support. When the stakes are high, which is like all the time now, you know, we can provide air cover for people. We can be a buffer for them. Times of transformation, clearly, we can help kind of be an anchor in the storm for folks. And then every day we have a chance to celebrate people, right, to reward them for jobs well done, to really just connect with them, get to know them more personally so that they don't feel so isolated at work. So yeah, daily opportunities, right? That's why I say this book is really about those day-to-day choices and behaviors. I had Amy Edmondson on a few years back. I respect her work. Um, and one of the quotes that she has from your in your book, um, you know, and people giving you testimonies, she says, this is simply the best book on diversity and inclusion I've read. Why do you think she said that? My God. Um, first, I have to tell you that when I first read what she wrote, I cried. I am a huge fan of Dr. Amy Edmondson. Her work is so important. You know, we learned in my own research that psychological safety is the precursor to inclusion, and it's also an outcome of it. So it kind of wraps around all the good things we're trying to do. You can't have inclusion without it, but also when you are inclusive, that is the what you get, right? On the other side is people feeling safe. So when she said that, it meant so much to me. And I can't really speak for her in terms of what she meant by it. But what she said to me was that it was really um, well-researched, that it was very thoughtful, that it was really instructive. And so I believe she meant that it was just a really well-grounded piece of work um, and also something that could help people get up tomorrow, right, and be a better leader and help do the work that they're called to do. Tara, for people listening, what do you encourage them to do as a next step in this discussion? Well, I encourage them to read The Waymakers, uh, Clearing the Path to Workplace Equity with Competence and Confidence. And not just because I'm trying to sell books. I honestly believe it can make us better leaders. uh, And I think that's what our people deserve. Um, And then I encourage them to get to know the people in their charge. One of the big ideas I talk about in the book is advantage is kind of at the intersection of affinity and evidence of contribution, right? And when we don't share affinity with someone, like when when we didn't go to the same school or we're not the same gender or whatever, and we don't know anything about what they've accomplished, 
they virtually have no advantage. So if we want to help give people more advantage right away, the very first thing we can do is get to know them. I love that. My guest today has been Tara J. Frank. Tara, thanks for coming on the show. I really appreciate you. Thank you for having me, Brandon. I appreciate it.